0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. So this episode I speak to Julie Taylor, who is the Chief Executive of the Thomas Deakin Education Trust. Gosh, where to start? This was such an interesting interview. Uh, We covered how the group of schools that Julie leads responded to COVID, looked after pupil welfare, kept teaching going and also kept kids and families fed, which included teachers making deliveries of food parcels. We talked about Julie's thoughts on a more flexible model of schooling to do with the mix of in-person teaching and also digital teaching about the hours that children attend schools and also the use of the school building itself. Can it become more of a community centre? And quite a big part of the discussion is on the role of schools and how a successful school can't just be about exams, exams, exams. It needs to be about much more than that. So let's hear from Julie. Julie, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I wonder if I could start just by asking you to say a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, so I am the Chief Executive of the Thomas Deacon Education Trust, which is a multi-academy trust which is based around Peterborough and Cambridgeshire. And the um, academies movement started very early in the 2000s and was an alternative way um, to deliver an education outside of local authority control, and it's had various iterations over time. I was brought up in um, South Wales, spent uh, the majority of my childhood there, and went to my local primary school in the village where my parents lived, just outside of Cardiff. And then I went on to the local comprehensive school, everybody just went to their local school. And um, my parents were always highly supportive of education, they were both two very clever people themselves. Um, but because they came from a working class background, they didn't get the opportunity to go on to further or higher education. So education was always very valued in our home. Yeah. So, so um, it was natural that they encouraged me to to apply to university when the time was right. And um, I felt very lucky to be able to go to university at a time when you could get a full grant. So my, you know, my parents wouldn't have been able to afford to send me. Um, and I uh, gained a place at um, the University of Manchester uh, to study English language and literature. My parents were incredibly proud of that. They didn't understand that process and um, I always remember um, getting a letter telling me that I'd got an interview at Manchester University and you know, I was saying, I've got to get the train from Cardiff, that's about four hours to get up to Manchester. Yeah. And my mum just said, you know, well, what can I do to help you? What can I, Well, your dad can take you to the station and um, I'll make you some sandwiches for the journey. <laughs> and even though they had no idea what that experience was going to be like for me, they were incredibly supportive. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I ended up staying in Manchester, the early part of my teaching career. I did my degree. I did my postgraduate um qualification, ended up staying in Manchester oldham rochdale from my early career before i then started to move around a little bit i went back to my native south wales for a while um, and this, then I,
0: this was as a teacher
1: yes yes i've been a teacher my whole life right. uh, andrew i'm one of those people who went straight from school to university and i've been in schools ever since so i've had um, a long uh, career in education 39 years in education and um, yeah then i went back to south wales and I did two deputy headships, and then I did three headships before becoming the chief executive at Thomas Deacon Education Trust.
0: Wow! Um, so I mean, education is obviously a real passion of yours, and has been an important part of what has really shaped you as a as a person, it seems. And to, just to just to say a bit more about Thomas Deacon, how, how many schools are in that organisation?
1: Okay, so we've got um, currently eight schools in our organisation. Um, they range from nursery school through primary school. We've got um, an all-through school. We've got secondary schools. Um, we've got a people referral unit, so that's a school for those children who've been permanently excluded from mainstream education. Yeah. And we also work with an independent Muslim faith girls' school. So quite a, a diverse range yes. of schools within our trust.
0: Just so people understand your role, you oversee the schools, but you you're not a head teacher of any of the schools. so what could you say a little bit about your your exact role there because I think people have find it very interesting?
1: Well, the accountability all rests with me unfortunately yeah. you in a in a school that's not in a multi academy trust the accountability rests with the head teacher. But when you're in an education trust like we are, the accountability—so for for Ofsted inspections, for um, delivering the right level of education—all legal responsibilities all fall onto my shoulders. So for me, that you know, that's for five thousand plus um, learners, eight hundred and fifty staff, a thirty million pound budget—all that responsibility sits on my shoulders, Um, and it's equally about running the education aspect as it is about running the business aspect you know it's a multi-million pound business that I'm running as well as delivering education for nearly five and a half thousand children.
0: Yeah Um, I'll come back to uh, a bit later on to the leadership model and how that works with everybody later but I want to get straight into talking about the impact of COVID-19. So how, how has this impacted teaching? We've all heard bits and pieces on the news and Certainly a lot of parents I know have had their own experiences, but what's it been like trying to lead a group of schools through this?
1: I mean, I can't describe to you, Andrew, the, the shock that was felt cr- across the education world in March when we were asked to close the schools down. I know we were still open for key Worker and vulnerable. Uh, children, but for the majority of children, they were sent home, and and we as we with staff were sent home, and we were told, you know, we had to work from home. And as I say, in, in all of my thirty-plus years of being in education, never known anything like it. And that shock was tremendous. That sense of loss, really. That how do we cope in a world that we don't go physically into school, we don't see children, um, and and that immediate need to adapt how do we make sure that children are getting not just an education but a good quality education from their teachers during this period was hugely challenging and i look back now at those early days and literally i was working every single hour that i possibly could connecting with colleagues across peterborough and cambridgeshire to make sure that we were all trying to do largely the same things for our children and families because it was about as much about the children getting an offer as an equitable offer, you know, you wanted every child to have the same good quality offer. I chaired the Peterborough CEO's group for education and, you know, setting up daily meetings to make sure that we weren't missing anything, that we were sharing best practice, um, that we were making sure that each and every child was getting some sort of education. And it was a little bit like the Industrial Revolution, Um, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, we've gone from, you know, very um, person intensive industry to suddenly very technology intensive industry. And we had to adapt so quickly um you know we we moved away immediately from you know 30 children in a physical room with one teacher um being uh, leading the learning to a range of online learning activities which meant that children didn't all have to be in that room at the same time you know some children were accessing the learning first thing in the morning and then, you know, going out to play because we had some beautiful weather during that, that early part of, of lockdown. And and some of our teenagers weren't getting up till lunchtime and then were maybe yeah. in some of their learning from about six o'clock till midnight. Um, but that was the um, flexibility that was offered by this kind of um, approach. And it allowed us to connect with children um on a more personalised basis I suppose really because um you were allowed you were able to offer small group tutorials. So if you were in a maths lesson for example and you're working your way through equations, something I struggled with particularly at school, um and you really didn't understand, the teacher could deliver the online learning. And then for those children who really needed that additional help, there wasn't a bell which meant they had to shoot off to their next lesson. They could just stop behind and maybe four or five children, the teacher could then take them through in a little bit more detail what they needed to do. So that was yeah. that great, but getting staff up getting myself upskilled, you know, first and foremost, to be able to lead my organisation when I wasn't physically going into schools, meeting with people, testing the quality. How did I do all of that? Sat yeah. at my kitchen table at home from um, behind a laptop. Um, it was a really challenging time. You know, how do we try out different platforms because we didn't have a consistent learning platform across the trust, different needs for nursery school children, primary school children, secondary, sixth formers, all got very, very different learning needs. And trying to put together a package which would meet all of those needs and enable those children not just to exist but to thrive and flourish was really important.
0: Yeah. What about with the people referral units? I'm sure that was particularly challenging.
1: It was incredibly challenging and, and um, you know, first and, and foremost our concern was around safeguarding those children because they were um in communities and of course the 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 school, the uh, Richard Barnes Academy of called serves the whole of Peterborough so they're not just located in one particular community, they're spread across the city. So just first and foremost making sure that those children were safe and well was our priority and being able to speak to those children on a daily basis was really important. Mm. Um, there were children who were disengaged with learning anyway, um, you know, because they, they had been let down by the mainstream system, and um, to try to get them to engage at some level took a very different approach. So, in the early days, it was very much about staff driving out to their houses, standing at the end of the drive, and just... Having a conversation and perhaps handing over some paper copies of work. Um, because the other thing that of course this whole pandemic threw up was the digital divide, you know, that, yeah. that had devices and those that didn't. Um, so just yeah.
0: more, more generally on pupil welfare, how have you, how have you kept an eye on that? Cause I know that was something when we've previously spoken that was a big focus of yours.
1: It was um, hugely important to me. Um, you know, you talk about where the accountability sits, and, the, and the, that sense for me of I am responsible for the welfare and well-being of you know five thousand plus children really sat heavily on my shoulders, and, uh, and on the shoulders of the head teachers and principals in our schools. How are we going to make sure we normally have that daily contact? We can look children in the eye. We know when things aren't right for them. How are we going to manage and deliver that? So we had, um, for some children, um, weekly calls from their class teacher or their tutor, those children who we knew were uh, at greater risk or were more vulnerable. There were daily calls, staff drove out in their cars in in pairs and, you know, as I said, spoke to children through windows to make sure that they were okay. Um, That was really important to make sure that they were were safe and well. And, And that was our absolute priority at the start of lockdown. And then that led on to kind of how well are they looked after so you know a significant proportion of the children in our trust are entitled to preschool meals so yeah. we had to make sure that the children had access to food because one of the great things about our trust and uh, Michael who's the head of our catering team He is an immense chef. Anybody who is anybody in Peterborough will tell you about the quality of food that you get in um, Thomas Deacon schools, and um, you know the children are very well fed every single day: breakfast, lunch, um, food after school. You know, we 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 know the families well. We make sure our children are well fed, and we give very generous portions because you know teenage boys take a lot of filling up. Yeah. Really concerned about how we're going to manage that during this period, and it was before the government decided to give out vouchers. So in that period before that, you know, could we get the children to pick up a packed lunch every day? So we have staff driving out in cars and vans taking um, food out to places.
0: You, you had mem- members of your staff team delivering food to, to yeah. Wow, So it really was a case of everybody getting their sleeves rolled up.
1: Yeah, it absolutely was and, and that was the great thing really, was that team spirit. There was nothing that um, you know, we asked staff to do that they weren't prepared to roll their sleeves up and, and get on with. And as I say, we sent out pat lunches at first and then um we provided some hot meals, um and then you know, we've moved to a situation now where we give families boxes of food for a week and Michael has prepared Recipe suggestions and step-by-step instructions. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think families are really enjoying We're even getting some cheeky messages back now saying, well, we're not so keen on this type of food. Can you give us more of this next week? But that's wonderful because we know at least families and children are being fed. And that was yes. the thing.
0: Exactly. And so do you think, uh, you know, take the pandemic out of it now and imagine a time, hopefully in the relatively near future, where we're back to almost normal, Do you ever envisage going back to the old model or do you think the way teaching happens in schools is now changed for good?
1: I think it's changed for good. I don't think you can put everything back in that box that was pre-pandemic. I think we've got to think really carefully about, you know, what are the positives that we've taken from um, this period of time? And we talk very much in our trust about how do we build back better? And I think one of the things that I I really um, think the pandemic has enabled us to do is to, is to be brave and to be clear about what we need to do for our children. So some of the things that we're going to continue to do is, is to continue um, this digital learning experience, making sure that we can tailor the learning better to meet children's needs. And if you think about how we've used the technology during this time, um, you know, we've got a range of children. So for example, you're, you're post-16, your sixth form students. But when they go to university, they're expected to do quite a lot of online learning and research. Why are we still bringing them into school every single day to sit in classes? So can we have a blended approach to some online learning and research groups? And can we have some face-to-face teaching? You know, can we have that blended approach? We've got a number of children in our schools who have medical needs or special educational needs who can't cope with a full day in school but have an entitlement to that full education. So using the technology, using our digital strategy to really make sure that those children are provided for in a high quality and meaningful way I think is a really exciting development as we move forward.
0: What would that look like practically? I'm sure parents wouldn't be looking forward to to a situation where, for the for the rest of time, the kids would, would be at home a couple of days a week. I'm sure that's not that's not the model you mean. There's probably flexible ways of delivering the teaching in the school building.
1: Yes, well, that's the issue. Um, it's about using school buildings more effectively and and opening those school buildings up so that there's a wider access to the community. So some of the learning could take place in evenings when parents and other members of the community could join in some of those classes. You could get a situation, I mean there's lots of research out there which says that there's a reason teenagers are difficult to get out of bed in the morning because you know the way their bodies are made up, the way the science works means they're actually not able to function that early in the morning. So instead of building more and more schools as the population grows, why don't we use school buildings more flexibly? And you can have certain groups of children who attend in in an early part of the day and certain groups of children who attend in the later part of the day. You know, school buildings by and large are open for 195 days a year. Um, between the hours of, say, 6 in the morning till 8 at night. Yes, there'll be some let outside of that, but by and large, that's when they're used. So there's a significant proportion of the year when those buildings aren't used effectively. and. Yeah. Having that flexible approach, in my view, would would be good for staff because you'll have some staff that it will suit their lifestyle to maybe teach from eight o'clock in the morning till till one o'clock lunchtime, and then another group of staff who would say, yeah, I'd rather work from two in the afternoon till till six o'clock at night because that.
0: I, think, I, I think that's really interesting, and that, uh, and that is definitely a very radical idea. A lot of the children's social care le- leaders and councils who we've spoken to have have indicated very strongly that schools have been the key partner in this. It's been social care services have felt under pressure and have found it quite difficult to go about their their normal work. And actually, schools have been the eyes and ears of councils more more widely and actually have become real community hubs as one of the few Mm -hmm. public institutions that has remained largely open compared to others.
1: Yeah. And I think that's right, and I think that um, has really brought into question again, you know, what's the purpose of school, um, and what, are, what does what role does a school play in its community? And um, I think we need to, to listen uh, more deeply to our communities and to our parents, to our staff, and try to really build this shared understanding of what the purpose of school is and what we want for all young people. Um, I think, you know, in the last, dare I say it, 20, 25 years, we've really narrowed what schools have done and what they do. When I think back to my own schooling, you know, a village primary school serve in a village and then uh, a bigger comprehensive school serve in a town. That community, that school was part of that community and understood it. The accountability model that we've had in schools over the last 20 years, I would say, it has really been dominated by, you know, exams, 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 exam results at all costs. And while that's been useful, its race standards, don't get me wrong, I think it's coming to the end of its natural life. And this whole pandemic, as you say quite rightly, has called into question um the the number of unresolved problems that exist in our society and that without schools, um that society wouldn't be able to resolve. You know, we as teachers in schools and, and associate staff in schools work really hard with the families to make sure that children can learn effectively. And to be yeah. able to learn effectively, children have to be safe, they have to be well, they have to be clean, they have to be fed. and And we have always taken on that role, the, the policy, the educational policy of this country has tried to move us away from that and has almost devalued that role that we've played. Um, yeah. And I think now with the pandemic, they really understand that without schools, They're not going to be able to deliver on some of those social care services. They need schools to know the families in the way that we do. They need us to have those relationships so that when an intervention is required, we've already got that trust, that shared relationship between us, which will enable us to take the right action.
0: That's extremely interesting. And you're, you're advocating for a much broader role for schools than maybe schools have been in recent history at least. And I think that is very interesting. And that whole um, a- idea of it being a more flexible space, both in terms of time and use, I think is really interesting as well and is something that I imagine a lot of people are thinking about and hoping to explore as we get back to normal a- after the the pandemic. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about some of the challenges ahead for children's social care. So many people have been warning about the challenges which will emerge as we come out of the pandemic. And directors of children's services I've speak to, as I said before, have referred to schools as their eyes and ears during this. So in your view, what, what, what is the shape of some of the challenges that social care will face as we emerge from the various lockdown mm-hmm. stages? Uh, and are new problems going to emerge from this? You know, Are we going to see different types of problems emerging?
1: I think the difficulty with this one is we just don't know. We, we've got nothing. We've had nothing like this before to, to base this on. And we were already, if you look at any of the PISA studies, um, dealing with a generation of young people who were significantly more anxious and Depressed about their own sense of well-being than they've ever been before, and felt, you know, really the stress and pressure of um, 21st-century living and the 21st-century education system. Um, I think the problem will be is that everybody will come to back to school, back to the table, back to social care at different points. You know, we, we take this approach sometimes that there is a a a homogenous solution to all this and of course there isn't people are where they are and what I think the challenge for us will be is to how do we better meet people where they are and bring them with us on that journey and getting a closer working relationship between the services that exist the public services that exist by using schools as a, a community hub if you like Understanding better that relationship between social and cultural well-being and academic achievement uh, will be absolutely integral to to moving things forward. Our young people are resilient, they're imaginative, they're creative, um, and they don't know any different. Um, And so sometimes we uh, tend to impose on them um, a sense of what we as the adults think they might be feeling or or, or might need. And I think one of the things we've got to really learn to do is to listen carefully. One of of my earliest um, experiences of of getting student feedback, um, I was with another group of um, head teachers and we were just talking about success and how we define success in a school And um, this girl, Megan, piped up and she just said, may I say something? And I said, yes, of course you may. This is about you, the students, you know, in your slightly patronizing head teacher way. And um, she said, success is personal. Whatever you measure success as, as a school or an education system or a government, doesn't matter to me as a person. Success is personal. It's about me. It's about my goals, my hopes and dreams. The type of life that I want to live. And I, gosh, you know, that stopped me in my tracks. There have been many moments in my teaching career where children have stopped me in my tracks I'm the a swift answer. But I thought, you know, she is absolutely right. And this yeah. is, I think, we're going to have to deal with in a better way. We've got to stop thinking of groups of people as one-size-fits-all we've got to yeah. really listen to people and try and meet their needs individually and I know that will be a challenge I know That's that that
0: would be extremely hard to achieve I think but an absolute worthy. Endeavour. Um, I just want to uh, just ask a, a little bit more about some of the things which you've been seeing with children and their families over over this period. And obviously you can't get into specifics, but just what sorts of new challenges are, are, are you seeing that the pandemic ha- has forced or caused? I'm
1: seeing um, a huge impact on, on children's um, mental health Um, my sixth form in one of my schools um, a couple of weeks ago led a Cross City um, Mental Health Summit meeting because they were so concerned about the the mental health and well-being of uh, children and young people and that's played out in in a variety of ways more parents are choosing to keep their children at home having elective home education because they just do not trust uh, the system they don't trust children to be in schools anymore they want to keep their their child at home. We see children who um, whose attendance has, has fallen. They're they're um, worried about returning. And at the extreme end, we see children who have been drawn into a criminal lifestyle. Um, at the start of the pandemic, they were probably known to the police about forty forty gangs that ran county lines. There are over a hundred today. My my most recent meeting with the police has said there are over a hundred county lines gangs. And and that um child sexual exploitation um, issue is is on the rise because children haven't been kept safe and people haven't known where they are. And um you know we've got real evidence in our schools of um, domestic abuse has, has increased exponentially one of the things we've done as a trust during the last week is we've signed up with the um, gmb their, their domestic abuse charter to raise awareness in our schools both with our employees and with our families because um, evidence in multi-occupational multi-occupancy households has been that um, you know Tempers have got frayed and fractured, and and people yeah. and children in particular. Sorry,
0: the is
1: the union. GMB.
0: Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. So, just for for people who might not know, thank you for sharing those those challenges. I, I think that lays clear the the hard work that's going to be ahead for both schools and social care departments next year.
1: I was just going to add, and it's also about the leadership there, Andrew. You know, you've got school leaders who have been. Working ceaselessly since the middle of March and yesterday I, you know, received a very heartfelt message from one of my leaders saying I've got over 50% now of my staff off with COVID related issues. Um, I've got um, a high percentage of children self isolating as a result of that. I've followed all the COVID safe measures. I have followed the Department for Education's directive and I am feeling dreadful. I'm feeling like I'm a weak leader because I haven't been able to protect my staff and my children um, from all that's happening. And I think that's the other issue that's facing us that people, teachers, head teachers, um, your office staff, your frontline receptionists have been dealing with so much, relentlessly with so much, because we don't stop over the weekends because of track and trace, we have to keep going. And because parents have nowhere else to turn, it's the only constant in the community is the school. So that where's the first place they turn to if there's a problem? They turn to the school. Um, and yeah. I think people are absolutely burnt out. And I think, you know, one of the other challenges is how do we retain our senior leaders in the profession moving forward?
0: So what are you doing to support your leadership team? Because it all comes from them. And if you can't keep them healthy and motivated and energized even, then that will trickle down through the rest of the organization
1: Yeah We um, we meet frequently we communicate a lot, we really look out for each other, we do pride ourselves on being um, a values led organization and our, our first value is trust and we define that by saying we are honest and supportive and we expect people to um, call things out whether that is um, if they 're talking about you know themselves or or to others, and we we 've really tried to look after our uh, senior leaders keeping in contact with them um taking as much strain that we can do it through the centralized part of the trust, so that the day to day things that are, are the only things that they have to deal with and say so the only things that 's a huge amount of work but that the accountability agenda, for example, sits squarely on our shoulders and we try and keep anything like Ofsted well away from the schools, you know, health and safety. We deal with all of that centrally. We say to people, don't worry about your budgets. We'll manage the budgets. You just get on with doing what you need to do. Um, And just, you know, caring, showing that we care for each other and um, showing that it affects us too. One of the things I did throughout um, the period from March till um, the summer break was, I did a weekly blog and I thought it was really important to let people in the organisation know that I was feeling as bewildered, scared, confused as they were, that I didn't have all the answers, you know, I normally go out and say, yes, this is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it, and this is how we're going to do it, and I just had to say, I'm really sorry, I don't have the answers. Or, I'm really struggling this week, I've not been able to motivate myself, or someone in my family has fallen ill this week, and I actually am struggling to to do a day's work at the moment. Sharing that with people and communicating that and showing that we're all human has been really important during this period.
0: Yeah. You said something quite interesting there about trying to remove some of the burden from, from the individual schools. And you said you know, you keeping Ofsted away. Just to, to be clear, I think you meant the administration of dealing with Ofsted rather yeah. than keeping Ofsted away. Um, but that suggests to me that a group of schools like yours is potentially a more resilient model than standalone schools where as you suggested earlier everything rests on the head teacher it sounds like in your model the head teacher can be freed up of some of the administrative burden at least to be able to focus on teaching and pupil welfare
1: that's exactly how it works and that has been um such a a strong advantage um, during this period of time. I can't tell you the number of times my head teachers and principals have said to me, thank goodness we're part of a trust because I don't have to worry about balancing the budget or ordering the toilet rolls or or whatever it might be, to a point that, um, you know, we have... Other local schools that have been struggling, we've just said, well come and be part of us for a little while. No expectation of you joining us. You're still a local authority school with your own identity, but let us help you because you're just on our patch and if, if we're doing it, you may as well do it as well. And, and so great. we've had people joining us. We're very lucky in Peterborough and Cambridgeshire, our Director of Education for the Combined Authority has been absolutely superb throughout and has offered people that flexibility to say you know you're not a maintained school or or a trust school we're all just schools trying to find our way through this and signposted people to to us to to come for that support and and that's worked really well and we've, we've met some fantastic people as a result of that lucky us
0: yeah that sounds fantastic um so just as a final question then what bit of advice would you give to someone? Working in the public sector, or charity, or a social enterprise, or a schools trust, what would, advice would you give them if they want to make the sort of impact that you and your organisation is managing to do?
1: I think um, be clear about what you stand for. You know, really having a, a clear, simple set of values that. That you stand for as a person and that you can then share um, in whatever way is appropriate throughout your organisation you've got to be passionate about what you do and you've got to be prepared to stand up for that I think you need to surround yourself by people who have different perspectives to you um, and I think that's really important that they can come to you and you can discuss things and they can have a different point of view completely um, without there being any fear of, of reprisals or recriminations you know you don't want yes people around you because that's not healthy and i think you need to enjoy the journey because you never reach the goal you know this uh, this amazing idea that you've got in your head all our schools will be like this education will be like this teachers will be able to operate like this will skip into school every day, happiest to be there than anywhere else, you know that just doesn't happen because you're always looking for for more, you know, you always want it to be even better and I think um, you know you've got to enjoy the journey if you're forever chasing a a goal that's maybe not going to be achievable um, you're going to end up quite bitter and twisted so you've got to really enjoy what you do and enjoy those moments when you get it right enjoy those moments, the little things that go right as much as the big things. And I think, you know, that's what the pandemic has taught us, I think. Values are simple things. So for me, providing an education for children, from which they learn about the world, which they begin to find their own identity, which they prepare themselves for the world of work, and then they contribute back to society... That's as good as it gets, isn't it? No, I've been chasing other things for so long and I just think if I can achieve those simple things, isn't that something fantastic?
0: That certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Julie, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. So a couple of things I wanted to draw out of that discussion. One is that the pandemic has clearly meant that schools have had to be more than just teaching facilities. They've had to look after pupils and often... From what julie was saying the families as well julie certainly put forward some bold ideas about a new form of flexible school model now i know that this won't float everyone's boat but there was certainly some sound arguments made there and finally much like human beings are organizations more resilient in groups where they can support each other particularly in times of crisis i think there was quite a good example here of how a group of schools within An Academy Trust was able to pull together and support one another and draw some of those administrative functions into the center and allow the schools and the head teachers and the teachers within the schools to focus more on teaching and pupil welfare so certainly some food for thought there so that's all for this episode and please do remember to register on the website or follow Radical Reformers on LinkedIn or Twitter to never miss an episode in the future.